Hello there, Heat Rockers. Before we kick this off, we just want to remind you that we are in the middle of our once-a-year Max Fund Drive. So this is the time where we ask you for the pledge of your support. And again, we only do it once a year. It's not quarterly. It's not biannual. We only do this this one ask a year. And in exchange for your support and your love, we offer you great thank you gifts. We bring you some of our special donor content. It's a celebration of all things Maximum Fun and the best time to sign on as a member. Or if you are already one of our valued members, upgrade your membership. I love Maximum Fun. I love the whole team. But I'm here to passionately ask you to support Heat Rocks. Please support this show by becoming a Maximum Fun monthly member. We do so appreciate those of you that have already supported us. Thank you so much to the current ongoing monthly members. Thank you for your awesomeness. Thank you for your pledge. If you can consider increasing your support during the pledge drive, if you upgrade your membership, you'll be eligible for all the swag that we offer. And there's so much swag around this show. You already know. And if you increase your membership, you'll have access to that swag. And I know you want swag in your life. You can go to MaximumFun.com to sign up as a member and you can select the membership level that is right for you. This is not a one size fits all. You got options out there in terms of what you can support, what you can donate. Here's what we need. We need your credit card and your some basic information, including which Max Fund shows you listen to. Hopefully Heat Rocks is in that number. Yes. And after that, you are a member. Your membership contribution is ongoing. We'll automatically process that each month. You don't really have to do anything else unless the card expires or you decide to cancel. And we know you're not going to do that because we know you love this show. We know you love Maximum Fun, and we can't wait to welcome you to new membership. So please join us as a member of Maximum Fun. And in our next break, we will tell you about some of the gifts that we have cooked up for you if you do decide to support. But you should know now that becoming a member will help us reach our goal of 25,000 new and upgrading members. That's important. If you support, you will feel awesome every time you listen, every single time you listen. Again, the membership support our show. There are so many benefits of contributing, including great pledge gifts. We know that uh, money's tight these days, so we will meet you at every level. Who says that? No one says that anymore. Ten, twenty, thirty-five dollar monthly levels. We got you. We just need your membership and your listenership. Go to maximumfund.org/donate to sign up as a member. Again, that is maximumfund.org/donate. <laughs> Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. My co-pilot Morgan Rhodes is away this week, so I'm holding it down solo here on Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite guests to join us to talk about Heat Rock, a.k.a. an album that burns baby burns. And today, we will be opening a can of expired pineapple to lead us back to 1994 and a soundtrack for Wong Kar Wai's early romantic dramatic masterpiece, Chunking Express. Chunking Express is a story of two lovelorn Hong Kong police officers and the women who may or may not love them. Shot on a shoestring budget in the labyrinthine I hope I'm pronouncing that right. 
hallways and alleys of Kowloon's infamous Chungking mansions. Chungking Express was one of Wong Kar Wai's first major international hits outside of Hong Kong and is regarded today as one of his very best works. While the film owes part of its appeal to Christopher Doyle's slick and dreamy cinematography, as with many of Wong Kar Wai's films, music plays a major role in setting moods and telling stories, least of all in Chungking Express, where Roel Garcia and Frankie Chan's score does much of the heavy lifting, and a few jukebox tunes keep rotating in to remind us that it's not every day we're going to be the same way. The Chunking Express soundtrack was the album pick of our guest today, the hosts of LA's own Heartbreak Radio, Lady Imish and DJ Fatrick. Dubbed by its hosts as, quote, a soundtrack for beautiful sadness, Heartbreak Radio got its start back in 2012, a pairing between community organizer and bookworm Elisa Sol Garcia and DJ slash producer slash educator Patrick Huang, who I've known since 2001 and is often my wedding DJ co-conspirator. They first broadcast bi-weekly out of Radio Sonra in Boyle Heights, and these days their new home is at the Boyle Heights Art Conservatory at 101.5. They got a micro transmitter out there on the east side, very nice. Soul and Patrick, welcome to Heat Rocks. Yo. Thank you for having us. That's the greatest intro I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> you have an amazing radio voice. Well, thank you. I'm you, just going to come out the gate. No, you all too. This is this is a, we're back to radio professionals all here right now. So I have to confess to the to our listener audience, when, uh, you, when you all first came out and said that you wanted to talk about a Wong Kar Wai soundtrack, I just automatically assumed it was going to be for In the Mood for Love because number one, it does, that movie in particular, does have this in indelibly memorable soundtrack. Uh, and number two, I just thought that the sheer kind of uh, melancholic romanticism of that particular film feels so in sync with the Heartbreak Radio Stees. But Patrick quickly corrected me and said, no, 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 we want to talk about Chunking Express, which is also sublime. But yeah, why this particular soundtrack? What, what was it about this one that, that sparked your interest here? Well, I think our initial reaction was... Uh, in the mood for love. Mm. But then Fatty pointed out, well, we actually haven't played that many songs on the show. So we were trying to, you know, it's always a collaboration between him and I. Yeah, I think our initial idea was in the mood for love. But then when we thought a little bit more about it and what we had played on the show, we've yeah. played more of the songs. But there's also this the situation where what is the actual soundtrack to this film, mm. which you touched on? Oh, meaning, oh, in terms of what we talked about earlier, right. is that there's a soundtrack in terms of the score, but really I think when when you and I, when all of us were talking about the music from the film, and again, this is no disrespect to the score, but we're really talking about the use of pop songs that appear in this, and, and that's a very much a, a Wong Kar Wai thing, right? Correct. Right, right, right. So what is it about those particular songs? And we'll, talk, we'll get into the specific songs later, but what is it just about this film and the songs there that have really resonated with each of you? I think Chunking Express is kind of the start of uh, if you if you're familiar with Wong Kar Wai's work, this film is really where he goes deep with the pop music as an emotional, thematic thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and he, I don't think he's perfected it with this film, but I think it's the first time where it's like boom, the lore of the film, how it's kind of like he was getting overwhelmed with doing this other crazy epic wuxia film, and he just right. did this as a way to kind of 
vent creativity, the unusual kind of like way the film is done, the 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 setup of the scenes of the storyline, and just the love. Like for us, it's th- those songs. Even though they are, they're only like four or five pop songs. The way they're repeated is really powerful to the storyline, and the storyline is very much in line with I think the vibe of Heartbreak Radio. In the mood for love is a straight heartbreak. You know, this one is it's funny, it's heartbreaking, it's quirky, mm-hmm. and I think that's a it's a great analogy of what we do at Heartbreak Radio because we're not a, a super depressing show. But on paper, it sounds like you're right, Heartbreak Radio. But it, it's well, people in general have, if I can just go off track just a teeny yeah. bit, people actually generally have a very rude response to our show. <laughs> which is fascinating to me because there's this automatic pushback about like, why would you want to make a show about that? But I think the thing that has resonated, one, our friendship, obviously, but also like the space that we create that heartbreak isn't just most of the time, generally it's romantic, but there's also life in general is, is very heartbreaking. And the response, particularly from like DJs like yourself, like you're saying, like, I remember when you were a guest on our show, you were great. And you said you have this sweet spot for this type of music, but you don't publicly get to play it too much. And so I think people have responded to that is that it's actually very common emotion um, that we all experience. But there's like this kind of we don't have this really public space to express it, especially like in the age of like social media and and stuff. So um, I think this movie in particular expresses all those complexities, you Mm. know, because there's these really highs and really lows of being in love and then like your crush or, you know, the first story is about a woman who's a drug dealer whose drug deal just went bad. She's a little heartbroken about that. (laughs) As I would be. (laughs) As we all would be. Played by the great Bridget Lynn. Oh my gosh, yeah, she's And starring starring a relatively young Takeshi Kaneshiro, who is a, I think, half Taiwanese, half Japanese actor, who, um, I don't think this was necessarily his break-breakout film, but he had been a pop star, and this might have been his first kind of major cinematic appearance, and then he would go on to do much more, but... I thought he was an actor first. Oh, is that right? I think he it's, might have started as a commercial actor and okay. got into film. You might be right. I feel like in Asia, that line is so blurred because so many artists it's, begin yeah. in both worlds. Yeah. Like they're just, that's how the mach- the industry machine works mm-hmm. is that you are just funneled in both directions. Yeah. But in any case, yeah, that is in the first He's half of the film. He's a good looking guy. Yeah. Yes. I was He's a good say, looking dude. I'm not familiar with anything other than the fact that he's pretty damn handsome. <laughs> <laughs> and his what came perfect. before is fine, but yeah, he's, he's amazing. That, that cast is amazing. Right. We are certainly going to get, again, we're going to get into the music, fear not, but because <laughs> we could... anytime, no, anytime we've talked about a soundtrack, it's impossible to disconnect the soundtrack from the movie that it appears in. And it would be, it would be silly to try to make that disconnect. So let's just talk a little bit about the movie for a moment. What were the circumstances in which each of you first saw it? What did you know about Wong Kar Wai in general? And what did you think of the film? Like, What did you come away with in terms of your response to it? Ooh. I think I watched it in college. Okay. Maybe even the same time I took your class, the Asian American film. This um, early 2000s. Early yeah. 2000s. I had no context of Wong Kar Wai. Mm-hmm. It's just like a bunch of the cool kids, the cool artsy kids said this was the movie to watch. Okay. And I actually didn't like it when I first watched it. Yeah, I don't think it's a film that necessarily instantly is like, oh yeah, this is awesome. It, yeah, I think I it wasn't definitely expecting. takes a while to sit to mm-hmm. settle into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing that 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 always stuck with me, even 
after first watch is the use of, of music. pop music. Yes, yeah. that even if it wasn't conscious thing, like whenever a song would come on. Um, so as a college thing, it, it also kind of like crazily kind of inserts into my like personal love life. Like the Dennis Brown song was put on a mixtape by Steph. Now my what? my partner actually used put one of our early like get that. to know each other Good love mixtapes. Mixtapes. She was up on it before I was, but she like she had a DVD of Fallen Angels in her okay. apartment. Um, and I was like, whoa, what's this? Oh, I got to catch up on uh, on what nice. she's watching. Uh, Shout then, out to Steph. All right. And then um, the Cranberry song, right? Or a cover. Officially, of, it's a of, cover. Yes, but, of the um, Cranberry song, Dreams. That song came out in mid- when I was in middle school. Mm-hmm. First starting to have crushes and heartbreaks and everything. So that sound of that song will always be like tattooed on me as like that. That, that brings back those kind of emotions, you know? Real quick, though, what is it about the film that you didn't like on first watch and then what what got you to buy in later? I it I guess I was thrown off by the way that the, the storyline was structured. Yeah. Um, and at first, I thought it was a really unbalanced film, like the first story versus the second story. Huh. One seemed to take a lot more time than the other. I see. I'm glad I rewatched it. I'm glad we have this conversation because I had to go back. I watched it twice before we came here and... Uh, it's it, I do have a different appreciation for it now. Like little details, the night and day contrast between two stories, mm. uh, the underground versus the above ground nature of it, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Th- the way he juxtaposed those two things. How about for you, Saul? Um, well, my introduction to Wong Kar Wai's work came via a coworker at the time. My coworker, David, we were talking, I think, about this very thing about soundtracks. Mm. And he's like, well, don't you like In the Mood for Love? And I'm like, I had no idea. had never heard of Wong Kar Wai. And um, so this was a while ago when you actually, do you remember when you your subscription to Netflix was they mailed DVDs <laughs> yes, to your house? Yes. They didn't have it. And so I live in South Pass mm-hmm. and there's a store called Videotech. Yes, yes. And of course they have everything. If you yes. ever want to see a film... You They're still around? Walk and, yeah. yeah. Okay, Shout cool. out to Videotech in South Shout Pasadena. out to yes. Videotech and yeah. to Sydney who works there. Because yeah. um, then I went bonkers, right? So then I was just like, I'm obsessed Wonka with this. everything. Exactly. And so the third film in the chamber was uh, Chunking Express. Okay. And First Impressions. I immediately loved everything about this film. Like okay. every single thing about this film. Yeah. Um, I'm a bookseller by trade, yes. and so literature and dialogue, and it's just everything about it, I just loved, obsessed with. And um, my favorite things are when the stories cross, however briefly, Yeah, you know, when they yeah, just yes. like, she's walking out of the store with the big stuffed yes. animal, and, and Bridget Lynn is there. What's her character's name? She doesn't have she a doesn't name. I don't think she has a name. Right. No. Yeah. The woman in the blonde wig. Yeah. And they just pass each other, and I'm like, this is like how life is, you know? It's just like these connections that sometimes we will never make. I think more like you probably, Patrick, my first time viewing it, I was mostly like, what is this? And okay, we get this first half of this story about this cop who's trying to get over a, a breakup. And then there's this woman in a blonde wig and she's, she's doing, she's dealing drugs. And then that story completely stops. And there's a whole second movie basically in the second half. And I guess because I just wasn't used to this kind of nonlinear storytelling exactly. I just didn't understand what was going on. So it was more of a slow burn for me as well. But I think certainly one of the big takeaways I got from 
uh, the first viewing was simply that, holy crap, Tony Leung is is really nice to look at. <laughs> I mean, he's basically again. This is a right. Yes, this is an appreciation like, of the men of Wong Kar Wai right. films. If you, it's like you took George Clooney and you gave him an upgrade to be even more charismatic simply by making him Chinese. Like that yes. is Tony Leung. So that's a big thing too, right? Like as a college kid, yeah, doing Asian Am. This Shout out movie, to Asian American Studies. Yeah, you know, th- this was a movie where the men were super sexy, right? Right, and like there wasn't there wasn't a lot of folks like that out there, right? Like as it as it, I mean, there's more folks well, now, there right? There weren't folks certainly coming out of sort of Asian American media because racism and all that stuff. So turning to Asian film was one of the few places where you could go to right. see this sort and of. And like yeah. you said, this was one of the first international successes, right? I think also beyond just the casting, what also was just really intriguing was just the setting. And so for people not familiar with where the film is set, I mean, if you look at photos of Chunking Mansions, which I think were torn down at some point, maybe before the takeover uh, or the handback, I should say, of Hong Kong to China in 99, it, it, is, it is immense. It's very dirty just because a lot of stuff in and around Hong Kong because of car exhaust and all this industrial um, pollution stains all of the walls. But it's just teeming with light. You know, that was a deliberate choice by Wong Kar Wai and Christopher Doyle to set it in Chunking Mansions because they wanted that kind of claustrophobic sense. And back to your point, Sol, the idea that you could have all these people leading their own lives yet just crossing in the night because everything is so close. To it, what was that thing that, that he says twice? That it's, it's used twice in the movie. Uh, we That's the closest we got. Right. One centimeter or something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We are back again talking about the Max Fund Drive, the one time a year where we ask for your support by becoming continuing members, helping to support our show and all of the wonderful shows here on Maximum Fun. Mm-hmm. We mentioned earlier that we got swag. We yes. got a lot of swag. And the great thing about this is that depending on how deep your pockets go, you got options. As low as $5 a month gets you what, Morgan? Exclusive bonus content, which includes over 100 hours of bonus episodes. At $10 a month, you get the latest this year's, the 2019 version of our Heat Rocks pin designed by Megan Lynn Cott. I know some of you out there have last year's pin. This new one is a cassette tape in flames, capturing that Heat Rocks vibe. And they have these pins for every show. So while we do hope that you support Herox specifically, you got options because Megan Lincott has time to produce a lot of different cool pins. Right. And this pin is ill. Like, you don't even, even need to own cassettes to have to need this pin. This pin is a cassette tape with fire on it. As I've said many times before, I'm not going to tell you how to rock it, but if you're into denim, that's a sure shot. Just get the pin because you like your denim, if for no other reason. And at the $20 level, we have a beautiful 18 by 24 inch, 550 piece Maximum Fun puzzle. It's designed by Jeffrey Tice specifically for Max Fun monthly members. It's the perfect activity to go along with listening to podcasts if you're into puzzles. That's all you, baby. The puzzle is a sketch. And if you've ever had the privilege of standing in the Max Fun headquarters here, in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, our studio overlooks MacArthur Park and the Los Angeles skyline, and that is exactly what Tice designed for us. Is It is a view, one of the most beautiful views of Los Angeles you will ever see, which we get to enjoy here at the Max Fun HQ. 
$35 a month gets you a glass coffee mug. Mm. I don't. I don't have that many glass coffee mugs. I might have to cop this. That that's, has that's a, that's above our pay grade. It does, but it's got the Max Fun Rocket logo on it, and it'll keep your favorite beverage either hot or cold, depending on how you go. But you know, around Heat Rocks, how do we like our beverages? Hot lava, baby. No doubt. These are pledge gifts, and if you think about the word pledge, when you use pledge, you shine. Don't you want to shine with us? <laughs> shine on Max Fun by becoming. A member. $50 gets you a metal engraved. This is baller level. We, you talk about like the black card. This is the silver card. It's the metal engraved oh, Max Fun membership card personalized with your name. You can use it to, you can't charge anything to because it's not a credit card. No. But you can still flash it and people know that you are certified. Just pull it out official. real quick and just say, listen, I'm metal. I'm engraved. I'm a member of Max Fun. I'm dope. Just to be clear as well, at any level of your donation, you get everything up into that point. So it's not like if you pledge $50 a month, you only get the membership card, but you don't get the pin, you don't get the cup. You get it all. At $100 a month, that is baller level. Yep. Membership in the Inner Circle, which is Max Fund's monthly culture club, plus immortalization at the Max Fund headquarters. I'm not even sure what that means. I hope it doesn't involve involvement, but it sounds pretty <laughs> cool. And then at the highest level, we have a $200 monthly membership, which gets you everything that I just mentioned, plus free registration at the annual Max Fund Con 2020. And having gone to the one in 2018, it was an incredible experience. If you are a Max Fund fan, you do not want to miss out on that. Do it now while you're thinking about it. Do it now before you spend your money on other things that aren't as important. And I'm not going to get into those specifics. But you know, Maximum Fund is important. Membership is important. We love doing this show and we can do so because of you help us reach our goal of 25,000 new and upgrading members. And you can do that at MaximumFun.org slash donate. Again, MaximumFun.org slash donate. Your monthly repeating membership is something that you don't need to worry about. Just give us some credit card and other basic information, and we will renew it for you until your credit card expires or you decide to cancel. But again, we make it simple. And so we have all these price points. We've got all this great swag available to you. Please consider supporting us. MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thank you in advance for your support. Thank you so much. We are back on Heat Rocks talking about the soundtrack to Wong Kar Wai's Chunking Express with a host of Heartbreak Radio, DJ Fatrick, and Lady Imich. Let's bring it back to the music. And I want to pull out the scope a little bit because you don't have to watch Wong Kar Wai's entire filmography to realize how important uh, music is to him and within his movies. Um, and I'm, I don't mean just scores, but that he, especially I think in the first roughly 10 or so years of his filmmaking, he really makes it a point to use different kinds of pop songs from different eras to accent key scenes in all the, all the movies from that era. And I just compiled a, a short greatest hits list uh, for, for this occasion. So, for example, at the end of Fallen Angels, which was in 1995, you hear the 1983 British a cappella chart topper Only You by the Flying Pickets. We gotta play this. We've, you, play, we've played it. Oops. See? <laughs> <laughs> you 
We've played it. During the opening credits of 1990's Days of Being Wild, which I only saw recently, you hear the haunting guitar of Brazil's Los Indios Tabajaras so and their 1964 hit, Always in My Heart. Last but certainly not least, you cannot leave In the Mood for Love out of this, which uses several songs by Nat King Cole in Espanol. Which I had never heard before. I speak Spanish and I had never heard these versions before. Let's be real though, Nat King Cole's Spanish was terrible. (laughs) Like straight garbage, but yet. Because it's Nat King Cole. Very endearing. And that Cole voice, it sounds amazing. And I think uh, one of the things that I think appears at least twice. Basura. Spanish has vastly improved since we started Heartbreak Radio. Right. (laughs) One of the songs that they use, I think at least twice, maybe even three times in the movie, Wonkar Wise a lot, he really is into repetition. He uses Nat King Cole's 1958 cover of the Cuban classic, Quizás, Quizás, Quizás. Siempre que te pregunto Que cuando, como y donde Tu siempre like, even when it's wrong, it kind of sounds right. I don't know. I'm not a native Spanish speaker, so I don't know if that just is offensive in terms of how bad he's butchering his Spanish. No, but. I think generally that, that version is very beloved, but because of these films, probably. Uh, and we have not, of course, even touched upon the fact that Wong Kar Wai uses in several of his films, including this one, famously, Cantonese cover songs of American and British pop hits. And we'll cycle back to that. But what I want to ask you all is when you're watching his films, so can it can be about Chunking Express, but we can expand it to talk about other films in, in his catalog. What is it that you think is going on and why he uses these these pop songs, oftentimes from outside of the era that the historical era that the films appear in? What do you read into its the symbolic use, if you will? I, I mean, his his knowledge of music is insane, first of all, I think, you know, to even think to use these types of songs. And it's also kind of interesting to me because I'm not, I identify as Chicana, but it's just always crazy to me when you see like American music and how it impacts other places. So it's very interesting to see the way that these kind of pop songs are used or beloved in other parts of the, of, of the world. Mm. I don't know if there's like a term for this in film, but like he ties a song with the character. Okay. Right? So, I mean, this is definitely true of Faye Wong's character and the Mama's and Papa song. Just every time California she's Dreaming. there, God, yeah. Virginia, it plays. And with, with Chunky Express, again, I feel like he's just kind of getting to his groove of, of using that style. It's, it's a little bit too literal. Say more. What do you mean? The song's a very literal description of her character and what she wants to do. Which her is motivations. Move, yeah, right. Because she, she wants to, to come to California, right? Yeah, yeah, right. And it's played a lot. We kind of w- talked about Very loudly at times. <laughs> very loudly. Um, so it's not just characters that are tied to the song. It, I, I think more than that, it's an emotion tied to it. Right. So right. the Dennis Brown is tied to that bar and like kind of like the unsavory characters in that bar. I don't know if that's the right term. Well, they're drug dealers. They're a little bit unsafe. The underground, right? Yeah. The underground. Right, right. Um, I have a whole theory about- Underground economy. I got a whole theory about that. We'll go back. We can go into that later. Yeah. But um, I don't know what he's thinking, but it works. Like, it, 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 as soon we have this, like, auditory memory mm. uh, of, of this music, and when it comes on, it already triggers an audience beyond just the beautiful cinematography, 
Christopher Doyle, of the storyline, of where we're supposed to be emotionally that he wants to take us with these characters and these right. scenes. Right. Not surprisingly, partly because Wong Kar Wai is beloved by film students the world over, is there has been quite a bit written analyzing specifically the use of music in his films. And in, in doing preparation for today, I came across a, a video essay that actually, as it turns out, a friend of mine, Brian Hu, who teaches film down at San Diego State, put together a few years back, which is all about the use of pop music in Wong Kar Wai's films. And I am way, way, way condensing what he has to say in this essay. But basically, he feels like that what Wong Kar Wai is doing is he's using these songs as what you might describe as symbolic uh, sonic markers around loss, nostalgia, longing, exile, and anxiety, all of which would have pervaded Hong Kong psyches in the decades that followed the communist revolution, where Hong Kong basically ceases to become part of China and strands people. Like they can't go back to the mainland because of the political situation. But then leading up to the 1999 handback to uh, China and the uncertainty that that created, and that in his movies, because they take place in this interstitial zone between these two historical markers, the songs are meant to convey, like I said before, like these, these feelings of, of exile and of longing and of nostalgia and anxiety. In our show notes, I'll post a link to Brian's uh, video essay, which I think is worth uh, look, uh, listening to and watching. But of course, I don't think you need graduate training in post-colonial theory uh, or film analysis in order to the, come away with the idea that these, these songs the emotions. Right, perform something uh, you know, for the character, for the plot, um, as we're all pointing out here. What the sun and the flowers I want to actually, even though we, I just said we, you know, we we focus back in on Wong Kar Wai, but I actually want to pull the scope back again here. Having just rewatched uh, Pulp Fiction recently because my my daughter had never seen it, the role of pop music in that film, I don't know if I would say it was influenced by Wong Kar Wai because I don't know what the timeline is, but they the two seem very much simpatico with how they think about how to use songs for all the reasons that we've been talking about. But even more striking than that they really let songs play in their movies. It's not like in, in contemporary film, you know, I just went to watch Captain Marvel um, last night and they there's a lot of pop songs in there, but like 20, 30 seconds, maybe a minute at most, but then they just, they cut it off. And in these films, you, you if you don't hear the entire song, you hear like two thirds of it. In Pulp Fiction, for example, I always think of the Uma Thurman iconic dance scene where she's listening to the uh, what Urge Overkill's cover mm-hmm. of Neil Girl, Diamond's. You'll be a woman soon. I love you so much, can't count all the ways I died for you, girl, and all they can say is he's not your kind. So in that film, that, that scene runs, or I should say the song runs for over two minutes, which I feel like is an eternity in a movie. You're just not used to hearing songs run that long. And in Chungking Express, Wong Kar Wai just lets songs play, like much longer than I think the conventional American cinema, cinema-going attention span typically allows for. And I think that's a really fascinating thing that he does here. I'm I'm not really up on cinema, but I feel like is is he the one, like you're saying, the connection with Tarantino, is there one? I mean, there's definitely one with Barry Jenkins, right? Because he is another person that's, you know, 
very obsessed with Wong Kar Wai mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. says that his influence, mm-hmm. this movie in particular, was profound on his decision to become a filmmaker mm-hmm. as well. And, mm-hmm. and his soundtracks are amazing as well. So Yeah. Let's, let's transition to talk about just the use of repetition in the film is that, again, it's not just there to quickly set the scene. It's there to be listened to. And the fact that you're bringing certain songs back over and over and over again helps accentuate that from point. the beginning i noticed that this time he it, he every time the song comes on it's replayed from the very beginning oh. which i think is very interesting right so every time you hit the bar bum bum dun, 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 you know what i'm saying right, you have the intro Brown. yeah same thing with the mama's about dun, 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 whatever that guitar intro yes. and that can be annoying i guess uh, I, I mean if i was a director i, I would i would be is that should I be doing this? Is that going to burn out like the, the effect of the song? So I think it's a very deliberate choice of his. Well, for each of you, what did you think about the use of repetition? I mean, I think it's very accurate in showing like how we kind of cycle through the same emotions over and over again. Oh, I like that. And, you know, like um, I'm using heartbreak just because it's the general reference for today. But, sure. you know, when you're sad, you always go back to these very specific songs. And I feel like that is so essential to this film is that, you know, she wants to get to California and she just keeps playing that song over and over and over again. And Mm -hmm. it's like, it's like her own little emotional loop that Mm -hmm. keeps repeating at different points in her life. And so that's kind of why I actually enjoyed the use of the repetition in this film particularly. Yeah. For me, and I have, I've gotten into deep arguments with friends about this, but the use specifically of the Mamas and Papas California Dreaming, which figures heavily in the second half, the Tony Leung and Fei Wong part of, of the movie. I don't know how many times they use it. It feels like three dozen. And it somehow managed to make me really actually dislike the song because of its repetition. And I have other, you know, most of my friends are like, you're crazy. It needs to be there, maybe for the reasons that you're explaining, Soul, in terms of it, it helps to explain Fei Wong's character and her motivations. And like, that all might be true. But I don't really love this song to begin with. And when you play it back to me, you know, at least half a dozen times, you are not doing that song any favors to my ears. All the leaves are I'm not saying it's a bad song. I'm just saying I never, ever in my lifetime need to hear California Dreaming again. And I blame Chunking Express for that. I mean, it's kind of a creepy song. That song always has kind of creeped me out. I don't know why. It's ki- it's kind of a dark song, right? It's not a few. Where are they, the way they set the scene, the lyrics, they're doing something a little bit on the darker side. And they're thinking, it's I like, need to get out of here. It's like post-apocalyptic California song. I don't know. Well, they're in a, they're in a dreary place. And they're like, can't wait to get to California. Mm. I don't share your thoughts about that. That's cool. Because uh, <laughs> most, I grew, most don't. I what about that other version? Thing. What's what? the other version? Um, Lee, Moses. Lee Moses. The Lee Moses version. Okay. Lee Moses' version of California Dreaming is solid. It's amazing. Because pretty much anything that Lee Moses does is pretty right. solid. But It's this... like a completely, different, a completely different song, I feel like. Right. All the leaves are brown. Now, if Wong Kar Wai had used this version, 
three dozen times, I think I could have I could have worked with that. But something about the Mama's Papa's version. But it would have changed it completely, though. I'm sure it would have. That's I like victorious. It. It's I, like you're doing a lap. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's waiting for you at the end. Um, I I like the song because it, uh, I had a the movie made me crush on Fei Wong. So and yeah. her character, like kind of adventurous, like not like kind of not all the way there, like dreamy. Right. As a college kid, I I was like, damn, like I am crushing on this character right now. That's why and that's why be- you came out to California. Yeah. And before that <laughs> before that, that song was just like the oldie song that my mom's mom right. and dad always play on the oldie station. That was right. like you you picture Woodstock or some or some kind of like Right. Um I, I'm not saying the song got better. Yeah. But my attachment to this song, my association with this song, was on that tip now with the sure. one car wagon wing. So he transformed that for me. So I, I'll always have that feeling when that song plays now. I feel like we're giving the actual score of the film a little bit of short shrift and partly it's because unless you're really really into film composition and film scores and unless you're talking about let's say something that John Williams did most of us don't remember anything about like who does the score uh, and the names of the score you know pieces because it doesn't exist in pop music in the same way that we're used to but if we could just briefly touch on this was there anything about the score which was done again by Roel Garcia and Frankie Chan, who have worked on several of Wong Kar Wai's films. So it looks like this was like the go-to mm. composition crew. Was there anything about the score that really stood out to you when you watched the film or have re-watched it? I look at this list. There's a song called Fornication in Space. Now I, w- I want to hear what that one sounded like. Yeah, that's actually my slow burner cut, but we can play it right now. Oh yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> does does this factor in more in the first story? I feel like it does. It does. It right? comes yeah. back, and I think it's to me it's the most memorable of all the specific score pieces. Mm. I'm not really sure how that's supposed to sound like fucking in space, but <laughs> I'm you There's know no gravity, Oliver. Well, I'm, yeah, I, I just again I just don't know what what fornication in space is supposed to sound like. I'm not sure it's that, but. It's a memorable name. Like when you look at the when you look at the track listing, it's certainly the first Sensuous thing that kind of leaps, leaps out. The, Whoa! Yeah, yeah. Fornication in space. <laughs> and I haven't had time to do this, but I would love to see the films after this film and how much the balance of pop music mm-hmm. from a specific era outbalanced just original score pieces in his future work. You know what I'm saying? Because right. it seemed like in, in the mood for love. I don't, I don't know. It's balanced. Like, Not that we have effectively sort of disrespected the score and, and express let's actually get to the songs that y'all wanted really to talk about and let's start with this what to you offer this and this might this may not be the right fit to how to ask this but we usually ask our guests like what is the fire track off this album even though i don't think this is a i know that was the one thing that i was thinking of when i was driving over here and i was so intimidate intimidated by this whole really, process what it I'm is like, what's the song that just leaps out to you every time you hear it in the movie i want to go with uh Things in life. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, 
I have a whole theory about this song. So we're, this is what we're here for. Your I, theory. I don't know if we want to go too deep yet. No, let's go deep. Now is the time. So that's the song that always comes on when they're at the bar. That's yes. ran by the white dude yes. who hired woman in wig, blonde wig. Yes. To hire drug smugglers who are South Asians. Yes, immigrants. So right. we're in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. We're talking about South Asian immigrants. Mm. Talking about this white dude who's mm. trying to like kind of run things and kind of like fucking everybody's lives this is a this is his song soundtrack about colonialization whoa okay, that's, all, that's, all, that's all i got no but yeah i mean it's it's i think the it, i actually don't think that song the way i associate my personal feelings with that song matches the the theme the 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 setting that it gets comes on all the time yeah. right it's kind of like the bad guy song but it's such a sweet like melancholy, but melancholy, sweet. Sweet. sweet, chill, like simple in the most beautiful way. Yeah, the way it's produced, um, and it was a, a a crucial song on the love mixtape that was given to me by <laughs> the mother Lila and Lino, um, aka your your life, your partner. lovely li- wife. Yes, lovely wife, and I agree the with doctor. Soul. This is the fire track. I think this is the fire track. It's not every day we're gonna be the same way there must be a change somehow there are bad times and good times I think it summarizes our show like very very well because I feel Mm. like I'm not trying to make light or make fun of melancholy I mean this country people are really suffering from depression is like a serious thing so I feel like the song is just um very comforting and and reassuring it's just like you know things in life they're up and they're down but we got this beat and we're gonna keep pushing through it and like it's i don't know it's just a very sweet kind Mm -hmm. of these really complex ideas presented in this very sweet melodic way you know so do you think the the bar itself as a a character in a movie provides that like as like the the place to kind of balance out the up and downs. So that's where like a lot of the characters end up when they're in both stories. They end in a bar. What well, kind of the l- last couple scenes? Mm, mm. Because the song doesn't really match to me like the the nefariousness of like that story of the smuggling. But it's definitely a bar song, right? It's a, yeah, it's because it, it's playing on a jukebox. I, I think it's on a radio. It's a jukebox yeah, it's a, it's in particular. And it does set a particular mood. It, it's also, you know, on your deep dive, which I hadn't really thought about prior, when he makes out with a woman, doesn't she have a blonde wig on mm-hmm. as well? It's some weird thing going on there. Some weird, really weird. Colonial. Colonial, subconscious stuff going on. I might have forgotten to ask you you both to think about this, so I hopefully um, you can, you're good on your feet, which I'm sure you are, but do you have a favorite musical moment I guess in this case, within the film, I mean, normally we would ask about within the album, but again, with something like a soundtrack, these things are, I think, indelibly linked. And for me, it is the second time that we hear Fei Wong's cover of the Cranberries' Dreams uh, that we've talked a lot about here, which is right basically right before the end credits roll. And to me, what I love about that moment is how it's just this perfect point in which the poppy, happy charm of the song accentuates the elation of the ending, which I don't want to spoil, but it's, you know, it's not a sad ending certainly. And I think that the way in which that Fei Wong cover just drops in seemingly on the radio, cause they pan to look at the radio and it comes in. 
I just, every time that happens, I'm like, man, that was such a good Genius. closer. Yeah. With this song, my favorite moment was the first time this song played when she's fucking up his apartment. That, I think. Wait, that. she was cleaning it up. What do you mean fucking it up? Well, fucking with it. He was okay. fucking with it. Okay, that's true. Maybe he wanted it dirty. <laughs> he, I mean, the way the, that's another thing that, that the way that he personifies the apartment as a living thing, mm-hmm. right? When he talks to all the objects within it. Right. And he kind of wants to live in that sadness. Like he, there's a, he it revels in the kind of that that mode okay, true true and so her fucking with the apartment is she's fucking with it and kind of flipping it and kind of is part of his this process of him get, coming out of his depression and breaking up with the the flight attendant yeah um and up to that point that every every scene that has a song involved with her with Fei wong has been the mama's papas so as soon as that song comes on it's like whoa it's very refreshing uplifting and like quirky and i just crush even harder on this character you know yeah it's just so insane. And if someone broke into your apartment to clean it, I don't know exactly how you would feel about it. But again, in his hands, it becomes just kind of like this really magical, sweet, endearing thing that she does. But it's quite nuts. Mm. It's quite nuts. And she's handling it. She's like, she's is taking control of her infatuation of him. And also in that same instant, it helps. Help him brother out. Lung, help, yeah. help him out. Get, like, get out of this funk. Yeah. Is there a slow burner off the soundtrack for either of you? What, what does that exactly mean? Slow burner, you know, the way that we talk about it is usually it could be a song that you weren't that into the first couple times you heard it. Uh, but like going back to the pop songs, the slow burner to me, going back and watching it, what is the yeah. Dinah Washington yes. song, right, which we haven't that's, talked about. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, that would be mine for sure. What a difference a day made. Twenty-four little hours. That's the song that 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 describes just the opposite of heartbreak in this movie. Like the the scenes where they're totally in love. So the first time it comes on is the flashback to Tony Lung and the flight attendant. Yes, him and his whitey tidies, and we don't have to go too. Yeah, it, it's a good scene. Um, is that, the one, is that the one with the shout airplane? Us, shout outs to his confidence and like he's in Tidy Whitey's a lot in that film. Love he's it. He's totally young, man. Yeah, well, he, it's yeah. amazing. For this Asian damn kid that grew yeah. up in the 80s, it was very uh, inspiring. Um, and then the second time the song comes on is when Tony Lung catches Fei Wong in his apartment. They chase each other around and they cuss to the scene where she's back at the cafe at the diner, or, yeah, the whatever cafe, it is. The, the food stand. Midnight Express. Yeah. And then Tony Lung comes and like is like, I want to take you out. Yeah, on a date, and that's when the song's playing. Oh, I had forgotten the second time. See, the repetition thing is kind of important. It's significant, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, maybe one of you was alluding to this as well. Just you think about the song itself, what a difference a day makes. In which, in a in, in a film in which these characters, it a day does make a difference. You can break up within a day, or you can find a new love within a day. And I think that's again maybe a little too ham-fisted, but it yeah, kind of works. It's though. very literal, but it's very accurate right. in the course of this entire film. Right. Now, I forgot when we were talking about Fei Wong and Dreams, you know, I don't want to undersell the fact that this is a Cantonese cover of, you know, a, a mid-90s alt Maisie Star era pop song. And what did we think of the fact that, like, she's re-singing it 
in Cantonese and 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 the, the, that difference that it, it makes because you recognize the song melodically, but if you don't speak Cantonese and I don't speak Cantonese, I don't really know what she's saying. I mean, I, I don't. She could have flipped the lyrics entirely from what the Cranberries original is. Not that I remember what the original Cranberries lyrics were, anyways. But I'm just wondering that 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 difference. If either of you had thoughts around Soul that. Soul speaks Cantonese. Fluently. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, maybe it's the point is that we, I mean, I don't, you're saying you don't, but it's the feeling that is what's translating to us, right? She could be saying, you know, go fuck yourself, but we're... we're <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably not, but who knows, you know? But it's, again, it's the, it's the emotion. It's kind of like the joy. It's the, the melody that mm-hmm. we're familiar with and we're, and it's taking us to that place regardless of what the language is. It's that melody, what it's, what it's bringing up in us, I think. It's perhaps. a pretty faithful uh, cover of the original song. And to be honest with you, I didn't even think twice that it was a cover. Mm-hmm. In fact, when we play on a Heartbreak Radio this is not even on purpose. We play the Cranberries version as a, alluding to that soundtrack. Right. Um, so, honestly, the cover of it didn't have much significance to me. I'm wondering now, as like a musician, like is that is that a business move to to prop up her? Was she already a superstar by then, or she was becoming a superstar? No, she was actually already quite famous. I mean, she I think she was a multi platinum artist by the early '90s. So this her him casting her in the film, she was not like some ingenue. She was already really well established as a pop artist. And so I actually I, I did do a little bit of background on it. And so Faye Wong had originally, I think, been called Shirley Wong when she first started to make records. And then very famously, for those who follow Hong Kong pop, the pop music industry, I think around 1992, she moved to New York for a year, basically to kind of find herself and, and figure some stuff out and then came back. And then this is when she started doing cover songs of American and British pop hits. And so the fact that the, the Cranberries dreams, I don't know if that was from an album that she had already put out prior to the movie, but it was very much in line with what Faye Wong as the pop artist was doing in the mid nineties. If the two of you, you can collaborate on this, if the two of you had to describe the soundtrack to Chunking Express in three words, what would those three words be? You can These tag are hard-ass questions. Of course it. That's why we <laughs> ask it. Well, I mean, it's obvious. Heartbreak is one of them, right? Boom. That's one. I think Heartbreak is, is, is not necessarily literal to the songs that are chosen for the soundtrack, but it describes the film's themes. But then there's like the Mamas and Papas song and the um, and the Cranberry song. There's a little bit of hopefulness in there. For sure. I feel like it's warm. Which is not necessarily a Wong Kar Wai trait for his future films. But there's a warmth and like hopefulness and like innocence to it. Yeah, I think in... That's four words. And none of his other... I think this is his most kind of hopeful, warm... I think in- innocent. There's an innocence to, mm. to the Cranberry song. There's an innocence to the... Um, 
things in life. Yeah. Things in life. The difference a day makes. No, I like that. Okay. Heartbreak, right. innocent, and sweet. Because it's, 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 they talk about serious things, but the vibe I always get from them is like the hopeful innocence, right? Like this, it's going to be a better day. Which, what a difference a day makes, right? Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, the host of Heartbreak Radio, which you can hear live. Is it live when you when you tape? Are you broadcasting on 11.5? We're about to, right? Yes. Okay. Live, 9 Monday p.m. Nights. on Mondays. And then where can you Monday. find archives? Mixcloud.com slash Heartbreak Radio. And do you each want to give out your socials? Well, you can find me almost everything at DJ Fatrick, D-J-P-H-A-T-R-I-C-K. And I am Heartbreak Monday on Instagram. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Oliver Wong. My co-host Morgan Rhodes will be back next week. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their studios in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, where people come to chase their California dreams. We want to thank all of our five-star iTunes reviewers, including Naja9, who said our show is, quote, like vibing with your cool friends who had cooler parents, unquote. Thank you, but for real, you haven't met my parents. Anyways, Blackbird Run called us, quote, enlightening, informative, and sassy, unquote. Indeed, I take that as a high compliment. If you have not yet had your chance to leave us a review on iTunes, please do consider just taking out 30 seconds of your time to do it. It is such an important way that new listeners can find their way to us. One last thing. Here's a teaser from next week's episode, which features Los Angeles's own Joey Dosick, singer, song, writer, and soulster, talking with us about Bill Withers' adjustments. To me, Bill Withers didn't carry his feelings on his sleeve. That's what's so surprising about this album is that it's so intimate for someone that presents as very stoic to me and guarded and anthemic. I think it's unfortunate that he doesn't get regarded as, as, as in the same light as these artists. It doesn't take anything away from his talent. He's just a different type of soul singer. Absolutely. He didn't, he didn't fit into that classic mold as um, a black soul singer. As you said earlier, I think when we weren't recording, you mentioned the fact that he had a guitar, yeah. you know, an acoustic guitar. And how that really separates him, too. It really was different. Different. Yeah, I didn't think about the guitar aspect, but I think in this kind of gets into the ways in which we code music racially depending on instrumentation. Yeah. And the acoustic guitar, for reasons that I don't think really hold up to just history, but whatever reason, it gets coded as white and it folk does. and rock. And somehow, like, soul singers and R&B don't have access to acoustic guitars. But nonetheless, I think part of those those associations are what weighs on Withers in terms of how he gets remembered within the kind of canon, if you will, yeah. of, of soul soul artists. But he did have his, yeah, he had as much crossover success as any of those kind of big names that Huge. we yeah. that we mentioned. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.